Welcome back to The Fuse Show, everybody. My name is Jim. I'm the co-founder of Xfusion.io and the co-host of The Fuse Show. I'm excited to be joined today by my guest, Camille Clouza. Camille is the CPO and co-founder of ClimateX, which is a climate data and analytics tech firm. He's an econometrics whiz of the unquantifiable with 15 years of experience in stress testing, loss, and capital modeling at tier one global institutions. All right, Camille, I want to go right into this. So I see on your LinkedIn that you're known as a quant. And I wasn't sure what that was, so I looked it up, and Investopedia calls that the rocket scientist of Wall Street. So I'm, I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit more about what that means exactly. So I would say that typically you are a quant when you um, undertake some heavy lifting when it comes to data analytics, and quants would be associated with anything numerical, uh, typically from, from financial services background, uh, I would say. You might as well just be a quant doing your data science as well, which doesn't necessarily have to be related to finances. But yeah, it's, it's heavy lifting on the data and math side. Okay, so were you, were you kind of like the whiz kid in school that, that advanced through the, the grades rather quickly? Is that, is that your story? I'm not sure if I was a whiz kid. I was a SWAT. <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah, lots of, lots of hard work and grafted. And I think, you know, you, you eventually just progress through your career. And, and I think it's... It get to the stage, and I had a career in financial services that I just decided there's more to life than than than, than financial services, and and wanted to try um, climate and climate tech, and and that was the next call. And, and I wasn't just doing it for the sake of um, you know oh let's just go and change careers because that's the brand new and shiny thing. I think I've, towards the the back end of career of my career, I was I was always thinking about doing something with more of an impact. And, and we're, we're, we're not better if actually just looking into climate and, and ESG and trying to sort of, you know, turn the planet into a better place to live. Absolutely. Well, that's a nice natural segue. And I want to drill down into ClimateX. But before we do, let's keep it a little bit higher level and tell me more about what climate tech is just in general. So I guess I, I look at climate tech in, in, in sort of two or three categories. So if you sort of look at the top level, you, you probably think about the, the hardware and the software, right? The hardware being anything to do with carbon capture, anything to do with, um, I don't know, solar energy, uh, anything to do with wind turbines, etc. And then you've got the, 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 the tech itself as in being the software, the data, the analytics. And within that, I'll sort of go further down and you've got sort of nearly the mitigation adaptation. So the mitigation would be something that will be created at the back of the Kyoto agreements, which is everyone was crazy about the carbon, carbon offset, carbon capture, reducing carbon, carbon emissions. And that's still very, very much important. Now, I think the, the carbon offsetting is probably going for the second wave at the moment in terms of the new startups and new technology that is popping up. When it comes to the other angle, the climate adaptation, that's more relevant to the Paris Agreement. So obviously at the moment, everyone started to realize that actually oh, well, we probably in deep trouble because if we, we're looking to be more on the high emission pathways of carbon rather than the lower ones, and what comes with it is acceleration of natural disasters uh, that, that are happening worldwide, as, you, as you've probably seen over this year. So we've got the hurricanes in the States as, as per normal. I mean, some of it is natural, some of it is accelerated. You had the wildfires, you had the flooding in Europe, you had droughts in, and, and sort of southern France as well. So it's all happening. It will be happening much more frequently. That's why the, the sort of Paris Agreement kind of came about and then there was a, there was a boom in there. sort of, there's a boom happening in the climate adaptation space. Okay. All right. So let's introduce climate X and tell me what you guys are doing to, to fight against that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we, we climate data analytics firm and, and I guess just, you know, talking about the agreements will be probably more around the Paris agreement. I, we're trying to project long time into the future until 2100 in certain cases 
what um, probability and severity of extreme weather events would be. So we would model things like floods, subsidence, landslides, um, coastal erosion, extreme temperatures at the very localized scales. And then we don't want to stop there because, you know, if, if I tell you that the probability of your house flooding will be 5% and the severity of that will be two meters up, that's not going to tell you much. What we probably want to know is how much it's going to cost you and how, how, how much that event's going to make a losses and, you know, how it's going to impact your wallet. So that's what we're also working on. And we do that at scale. So we, we want to obviously imagine, you know, every single little 10 by 10 meter grid or one by one meter grid, it's hell of a lot of data. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to compute it computationally work it out in a short space of time um, with, a, with a lot of parallel processing as well. So, so, so that's where the, the tech component uh, comes in. Hmm. Okay, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into just AI and machine learning in general. And, and give it to, uh, to us, like the explain it like I'm five version, so we kind of understand how you use that to, uh, well, within ClimateX. It's, it's an interesting one. So just, just to qualify, I guess the, the way, the, the, the comparison of, of AI or machine learning that I like to use, it's, it's a bit like a Russian doll, right? So you've got the AI and then the subdivision of AI is machine learning and a subdivision of machine learning is neural networks and all of those have different applicabilities. And I think many, many like very often people just randomly throw up in the year a term AI and just like think it's all encompassing great and it's pretty much a buzzword at the moment. Mm -hmm. So maybe to take a step back, I guess we, machine learning is good in two instances. One is where you need to approximate data and you don't have enough of the data on the ground. Okay. So for example, um, I don't know, um, we, we've got the very good data, you know, from satellite imagery or from, from environmental agency here in the UK on the past flood. However, if we go to a different country, when for example, the satellites wouldn't go above a certain region, or if, we, if there's no, not, not good or not enough of the environmental data, you'd probably want to approximate it, build in some sort of machine learning model to tell you that this is, this is what's happening. Obviously, you can fit this model, you know, it's got the pluses and minuses, but, but effectively, that's one, of the, that's one of the reasons you would want to do it. So we want to apply machine learning in data scarce regions. The second thing is, is that like machine learning specifically is very good um, where the system is too complex especially in climate, to describe the laws of physics. So, for example, our, our main purpose here at ClimateX is what we do. We're trying to build something called the digital twin of the Earth. So, in other words, uh, the way you approach the modeling is you, you're trying to recreate uh, as many variables sort of feeding into your hydrological model as possible so that you actually use the law of, law of physics to create what will be your flat output. So, for example, you'd use the topography, you would use the land use, so whether you have a forest or whether it's a road or whether it's like a basin of sorts, you would want to use the, um, the distance from roads and, and, and things like that. And then on top of it, you then add the climate. Now, a good physical model, the digital twin of the earth would cobble that information. And if you have all the data, you don't have to apply machine learning. However, on the other side, if you think about subsidence, right, the, the geohazards, you've got so many different variables in terms of your lithology and, um, in terms of what happens on the, on the, under the ground and on the ground, that actually sometimes the, um, the, the, the models are becoming too complex to describe with the normal rules of physics. So then you actually apply machine learning because machine learning is quite good to simplify things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, whether you run a decision tree algorithm or a couple of others, you, you always try to get to the right answer. And it's, it's sort of easier than trying to recreate things with the laws of physics because they, they, they can be just too, too convoluted at that stage. I see. That's absolutely fascinating. 
So how much human involvement is, um, is there at this stage in terms of uh, data labeling, et cetera, to, I don't know the right word, I'm not a, a technical person, but to implement this technology? So at the moment, given where we are, it's probably quite a lot. I mean, quite a lot when I, when I, when I think about it. But with, with our team of sort of slightly over 10 people, we probably got to the 1 billion of rows of data in terms, and that just describes a very small patch of the, of the UK, maybe roughly 10%. So, and the rest was pretty much created by a bunch of algorithms and through automation. So I guess as we progress through time, uh, the models will be able to self-run and self-calibrate and basically things will be automated to the tune that they will run by itself and this is where machine learning kicks in. So I think the, the, the question is great and I think the idea is next year there will be like minimum involvement required as things are set up so we'll be able to, you know, drop any model anywhere and it will just calibrate itself. I think at the moment it's sort of more of a, you know, we've got the scalable models, we can do them, but I guess to combine all of it together, there's still some sort of a human interaction happening. Interesting. So who, who are your clients at ClimateX? Is it governments, NGOs? Like who are you serving and, and what's the, the, the model? So the, the, the thing is that climate impacts everyone. And the way I like to think about it is, uh, if you if you feel like you need to understand where your climate risks are, especially on the physical risk side, then it makes commercial sensitivity for you. But very often firms don't move because of the fact it's costly. Uh, they don't they don't they don't move on their own. That's why there's a regulation kicking in. So before you didn't have to do it, now you have to. So you don't really have another choice. And and it all started with financial services. So pretty much here in in the UK. We, we're doing a climate stress test this year. So a bunch of smaller firms are already in the process of doing it. I think they, sub they should have probably submitted their results by now. Um, towards the back end of the year, there's something called an internal stress test where the regulator expects you to sort of, you know, include your climate metrics as well. But then that's UK alone. We know that next year we've got EBA, so covering the whole of European Union. Uh, we know that Asia Pacific is undergoing a similar process. And obviously, because of the um, Biden administration, all of everything has sort of sped up on the US side as well. So we know that, um, that the Fed will mandate the relevant climate stress that's very similar to the one currently taking place in Europe and Asia as well. And that's one side of it. So that's sort of financial services. But then if you look broader, as you said, it's, it's all about the policy. So the gov governments are interested in this kind of information, but also at the moment in the, in the UK, New Zealand, even in US, there's been announcements that something called TCFD, which is Task Force for Climate Financial Disclosure, that'll be made mandatory across large enlisted firms. So irrespective of who you are and what you do, so if you are a chain of hotels or if you're a logistics firm, as long as you're large or listed on the stock exchange, you're going to have to undertake the, uh, the climate sort of analysis. And there's no, there's no way out. Now, it's also quite interesting because then you think, okay, why would a firm with like sort of three, comp sorry, like three subsidiaries or so, or you know, three outlets or three factories care about it? But then what's really important is that what climate assessment is also looking at is your supply chain. So you've got the firm that's got two dependents, that dependent has another three dependents, is the whole tree. And when, because of climate, one of those little knots fails, then the whole operation might as well fail. So one of the things that TCFD is trying to do as part of the non-financial sort of stuff, they, they're trying to pick up the, the failure of the respective nodes as well. So pretty much, you know, if you, if you want my bland answer that, you know, this, 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 this is for everyone. And, and it's just the, the matter is, you know, once the geospatial core is modeled, 
um, and we sort of working through that, I think, you know, it's down to tailoring the outputs to the specific industry. Because, for example, if, again, as an example of a hotel, if you work in a hotel, you're probably interested in the high-level rating, right? You A, great. You F, well, you know, not so good. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and similarly, like, when you look at the financial services, they need the super rich data. So they want to know the reliability metrics, the accuracy, how things are calibrated. You know, there's an extra level of probability and severity that comes on top of it. So, you know, just a richer data, but pretty much about the same thing. Mm, I see. So... In, in over the summer, you picked up a pre-seed round of fundraising, of funding. I'm curious what how your fundraising efforts were. Like, what was the, the process, and how did that how was that experience? So, so I think we we actually closed in 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 June. So you know, we probably started around you know late December, started putting the decks together, mm -hmm. and and then the whole thing I would have said probably took around six months, maybe or slightly under. Um, I'm hearing it's uh, it's not this long. Like for me, it seemed tremendously long. <laughs> yeah, <I bet. laughs> and, and and you know, having worked in financial services, you know, you you would make sales definitely much bigger than the amount we've raised, and and that was probably you know the, the matter of a week instead of you know several several weeks. But nevertheless, we we got there. Um, how the process looked like, I think. Uh, I think raising pre-seed is it's like dating. So effectively, you just speak to a bunch of people. They like you. You continue having a discussion, um, and and sometimes uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so I think overall we we've learned hell of a lot. I think it helped us to narrow down some of our thinking. So I think you come to the table and you have like hundreds of ideas. Um, so I think you know through the feedback, etc. I think we managed to sort of tailor down the the proposition or the offering. Um, I think we got stronger in terms of thinking where we are and what we want to do exactly. Um, but I think also the process had its frustrations too. So, you know, we, we had a, um, a couple of instances where, you know, people would, I don't want to necessarily say waste our time, but, you know, they, they would want to toggle, sort of encourage you. But then it turns out we're not part of the investment thesis, which is something that we told them from the start. So it kind of felt like, why, why are we going through this process mm. from the start? Uh, and and it's just it's just one of those one of those things that hey you know it, it just happens because let's face it like if you're speaking to a 50th person overall then you know it might be it, it might be something like um, it, it's it's an effort and it takes time and and it can be quite stressful but I think overall look it's a it's a, it's a good thing it's a new skill <laughs> yeah for sure I, I'm curious to dive a little bit deeper into that so from an investor perspective. How much do you think they weigh in their decision if they like the founder, you know, trust the founder, et cetera, versus just the quality of the product? I, I mean, what I'm, I hope you understand what I'm getting at. It's like the, the personal side of that. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting one. Um, I think obviously graduating from top universities, it's, it's probably an, a, a game opener. And, and I somewhat, at, at some stages, I felt that actually didn't matter what I've previously done in my career because it wasn't, you know, to do with running your own startup. Nevertheless, you know, I'm, I'm after the 15 years of professional career in financial services and our, you know, product will be to start with predominantly sold to those. So I, I'm pretty much on the reverse seat together with my founder. Um, also, I think we might, I, I'll be quite blunt, I think we might have had a bit of a challenge because uh, my, 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 my co-founder is, is, is Asian and, and I think sometimes uh, it wasn't necessarily, um, like the diversity in some of the investment firms that we've been encountering wasn't really that, that great oh. and, and I felt that 
have potentially disadvantages to, to, to an extent. But hey, we just worked harder for it. That's, that's about that. Um, that's, that's the perception I was getting. I, I'm trying to discern. There's an idea that my co-founder and I have of starting a, kind of a sister show to the Fuse show called Infuse. And the idea, it's kind of a cutesy name, you know, but the, the idea would be that we would interview uh, VCs, angels, maybe private equity investors, et cetera, and create a, a network or environment where we can introduce founders that are looking to raise with investors that are looking to invest. And the hypothesis is, and I'm prepared to be totally wrong on this, but the hypothesis is, is that there's value to the investor in knowing the founder. Especially like with this show, we like to go deeper into the kind of their personal side, the way that the founders think, et cetera. Would you agree with that hypothesis? I mean, do you think it's all just like, I, I get that you need to check the box. Like the product has to be good. But when you're competing with other founders to raise funds, I would argue that if a VC is giving you the time of day, then likely those boxes have been checked. You're probably from a decent, you have a decent educational background. You have a decent product idea, et cetera. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I guess if you're talking about personal chemistry, I think absolutely yes. Uh, I think, you know, it's it's like, again, as I mentioned, it's like dating. You, you sort of need to sign in your marriage for another sort of three to ten years, depending on, you know, all your progress and, and, uh, and, uh, and the VC order, the sort of angels' plans are. So, so absolutely. I think we, we got quite lucky. I, I do genuinely enjoy working with our investors and we work with them quite actively as well. So, you know, they, they basically different people for different things, but, you know, the, we feel that we're given help and, you know, we, we're not afraid to ask for that help. So, you know, what, whether you say, you know, if, if, if it's important to, to be on the likable note, I would say absolutely yes. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to do business with someone that isn't necessarily <laughs> up to your liking. So, yeah, yeah. And, and we've been we've been quite lucky, as I mentioned. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate the feedback. It's that's my hunch, and I guess time time will tell, but there's got to be that differentiator at some point. And I think we underestimate how much our decisions are based on emotions, connection. Like, I, I think we like to think that's not the case. I think we give more credit to kind of our left brain analysis, but I, I really believe that a lot of decisions are made with emotion. Well, you know the story that supposedly you make a hiring decision within the five, first five minutes of an interview, so I think it might as well be something similar. Although, as, as and when you speak to the bigger investment machines, you sort of, you know, go in for the chain of approval and that you speak to an analyst, then you speak to someone bigger, partner, etc. So, yeah, that's the, that's the whole churn. Yeah, well, it's almost like you have to pass at each stage of the game, right? Like you have to make that connection at each stage to be able to progress down the path. And, and also, I mean, we, we had a couple of times like the, you know, a couple really, where we're in front of the whole panel. And, and say, you know, we managed to convince five people out of six that that was still a no because they, you know, there has to be that, you know, collective agreement as to whether they, they, they take you up or not. So that's, that's also interesting. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we, we're, we're presently bootstrapped and I don't know that it would make sense for us to raise. Uh, you never know in the future, but it honestly sounds quite stressful. I mean, I, I understand why founders do it, why it's necessary for a lot of startups, but it sounds really stressful to me. <laughs> I guess... My advice, if I could give any, if you can bootstrap, do bootstrap. Why would you give equity away from your own company? Mm -hmm. And and even before you sort of look at raising funds, there are so many grants available, mm -hmm. schemes, and there's so much help that can be given to you, starting from uh, cloud credits through to discounts and things like Microsoft, HubSpot, you know, um, Calendly, even, you know, all those applications you use as a business. 
there, there seems to be quite quite a few doors being open, you know, for, for founders to, to play with. And and bootstrapping it also depends, you know, on the skill set. If you say if you if you're a data engineer or a coder and you're trying to build an application, it, it really doesn't make sense to to get huge investment to start with and you know try try to play around and see how it goes. Yeah. I guess in our case it's slightly different because we worked so cross interdisciplinary that um, it was just impossible to, to, to do bootstrapping because, you know, the, the, the original team within the first six months was pretty much around 10, 11 people. So because it was important to have them because you had a data scientist and then the engineer and the cometrician and, and, you know, sort of a person in the business, business side of things. And I think it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a well-oiled machine that just needs, needs, a, needs a lot of different parties. I see. So it just depends, I guess, on the a, on a, on a vertical, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certain businesses have no other viable option. I think about network effect businesses, like Facebook is an extreme example, Uber, et cetera. It's like those businesses require a significant amount of funding to even have a, a fighting chance. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yep. Yeah. So I'm curious, like what, what makes you so passionate about this topic? You kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, but I want to dive in a little deeper. Like, Obviously, you have a lot of opportunities at, at your disposal, a lot of things you could have done. Why did you choose to go down this path? So I'm a bit of a tinker and, and I like to build things and implement them. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not an engineering type, but I'm really good in terms of building models. And that's what I've been doing for my whole life. Now, the, you know, just relating to my career, even though I was in financial services, I used to work a lot on stress tests and stress tests and tests for things like don't know, currency tanking or China going to war with US or I don't know, the GDP going, you know, entering a recession, etc. So, so climate is just another puzzle to, to that particular sort of, you know, equation of, you know, what can happen to us as a society. So it was quite interesting to me because, you know, it did help to leverage my skills, but also was something new and interesting and exciting and that could potentially help. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just, just looking looking at the longer term plans, you know, maybe after 10 years, if I feel accomplished and, you know, we've gotten where, where, I'm, where I'm here with ClimateX, um, maybe I would want to go to World Bank or UN or, you know, some sort of, you know, this, or, I don't know, European, uh, Europe, ERBD, which is the Euro European Reconstruction Bank of Development. So, yeah, I would probably want to do that. And I think it's, um, it's somewhat creative as well, I would say, in a way, because at the moment, I feel like I've got so many tools at my disposal, as in, okay, so... There's a problem, but you can throw at it so many different solutions. And, you know, the, the question is, what's the most feasible one in terms of the speed of delivery, whether it's going to yield your revenue, whether it's actually doable, whether you can, uh, you know, scale it and, and do that, do it at pace. I think it's, it's all those elements. It's an impact and, and excitement, really, I would say. That's, that's what makes me passionate about it. I think what's really inspiring, too, is when founders like you work to solve problems that likely won't even impact them during their lifespan. I mean, and, and I'm, I, I know very little about, well, compared to the depth of knowledge you have on, on climate issues, but is it fair to say that in all likelihood, you and I will be dead before this is a significant problem? Like, are you, are you truly trying to solve this for, you know, future generations that are going to have the most significant consequence from, from this problem? I think it's both. I think, I think, People typically tend to underestimate the impact of, of climate and what's going to happen. I mean, you don't have to look far. How many wildfires did the US go for in Australia over the past few years? It's, it's absolutely ridiculous and it will just worsen. 
there's uh, you know just look looking no further at the moment the, the global temperature of the oceans and seas around the world has reached a stage where the coral is being bleached obviously we know it supports the uh, microorganisms you know fish and everything that feeds off them and it's basically the whole chain and the ecosystem of it so i think it's the problem very much appropriate to now rather than later and it's um, and and you know we do measure we do try to measure both both now and and, and the future and how things will be changing yeah. and it's also very interesting because the the, the climate won't change everywhere in the same way. So, for example, if we continue with the current emissions, it will get warmer in the northern hemisphere uh, much faster than in the southern, which is, which is also quite interesting because you wouldn't have thought of it. But also there will be places that it will rain more, but there will be places that it will rain less. So you can't always say it's going to be one of the same thing. There's a, there's a very obscure, not obscure, apologies, this is the wrong word, there's a very... Shocking case, I would say, even in, in Africa, where, where Kenya is expected to be half flooded and, and, you know, extremely so, but the other half will become deserted because the, uh, the, the temperatures will rise to the tune that, you know, people won't be able to live there and the, the, the life won't be necessarily sustained in certain parts of it. So it's also quite, you know, it's, it's, it's how drastic and the, you know, the, the extreme weather patterns will be materializing over, over the continent. Right. And also, I mean, we, we're talking about weather and, 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 you know, the impacts and whether they're long-term and short-term, but it will impact humans as well. And, you know, I'm do I don't even mean things that, you know, we can survive in high temperatures and we've got air conditioning and, you know, we can be building shopping malls un under the ground and that's all fun and games. Mm -hmm. but, but I think the, what climate means is global display displacement of population. There'll be mass migration. And I think the la latest estimates suggest that between 25 to 30 percent of population will be climate refugees. Um, and I think that was by the year 2050 or 2060. So we are talking about quite a serious number of people moving about just because of that. Interesting. Um, hmm. So and think, regarding, sorry, regarding Kenya, so about probably 70% of our staff, we, we have a, I think we're at 40, 42 or 43 people full-time on our staff, and uh, probably 70% of them are in Nairobi, Kenya, or, or in that region. Um, and I just incredible lovely, amazing people there. Uh, definitely very tender for them and, and love them. I, I mean, is that a, a problem that's going to be in the near-ish term? I mean, what's the timing on, on that risk? I, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but I think we just looked at it from the high-level perspective. So the, the year we're looking at is probably around 20, 2050. And, and that, but that was with the high emission scenario. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, I'm not sure if you're aware because the, the whole world population is looking at um, RCP 8.5 and 2.6. Effectively, what they mean is just how much carbon we're going to be emitting to the atmosphere. Now, it's also interesting that the society as a whole, the policymakers are looking at those two bands as the, the minimum, maximum, as the good and the bad. But the thing is that at the moment, we're on a very fast trajectory to overshoot the, the RCP 8.5 if we continue at the rate we are. So the, 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 it begs the question, why are we looking at the bottom scale since it's not at the moment even you know, likely to happen? And you know, which, I don't want to sound alarmist as well because of the fact you know, we, scientists are very often accused of you know, just ringing the alarm bells, uh, but very often they've been listened to after the fact. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the general notion is at the moment that we, we're very much aligned of if not overshooting the RCP 8.5 rather than looking at the best positive case, which in theory, should result in you know minor changes that you know will be um, will be alright for the society, and then and then even though like the, some of the changes in climate will be irreversible, so even if we get to the stage when we emit in this much of the uh, CO two into the atmosphere, and even if we drop it all the way to zero, um, 
it won't happen. But even if, like, the, some some of the changes actually will stay in there for centuries. Oh, so it's it's not like it's something that can be easily reversed. Hmm. I think part of the problem, and just speaking for myself, is ignorance. I mean, so I'm in Colorado, and we have awful wildfires right now. We have them in this state, and then we also have, uh, you know, the smoke and ash blowing in from the terrible fires in California. But, I mean, looking out my window, I can normally see the mountains, and they're not that far away, and they're just completely covered in smoke right now. And the air quality is so low that, that breathing is becoming problematic, especially for people that have asthma. But I didn't know that that had anything to do with climate change, right? Like, so there's, I, I have a general ignorance on, uh, you know, I'm experiencing these acute consequences, but yet don't connect that to the, the root problem. And I think that's an issue when it comes to provoking change, because if I can correlate the root problem as climate change that's causing fires, then I'm more aware of the situation and thus more motivated to change it. Yeah. And, and it's about the extreme. So I would imagine in case of the Colorado, what happens, the, the number of sunny days or the number of days above a certain temperature is higher than on average, even though the average temperature isn't, isn't really changing by much. It's the extremes that do happen. And basically what we say in climate change, extreme are more, the extrema will be more extreme. Uh, and and I, 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 that's what will be happening in the case of Colorado. Because hmm. I guess I, I don't, we, we haven't gotten around to modeling the wildfires at this stage, but it's very much on the Q4 sort of timeline. But if I do recall well from a climatologist, I think you have to be um, above a certain temperature for, for a couple for a few days right. in order for everything to dry up sufficiently uh, so that uh, you know, sparking the wildfires is, is quite an easy thing to do. I see. I, I'm curious. You, you have very large, audacious goals that you're trying very hard to achieve. I mean, this is a, an incomprehensible problem, right, or nearly so. I'm curious, though, to break that down into like a micro sense and look at each day. I, I'm curious to know at the end of your day, how often do you feel a sense of peace and accomplishment and joy <laughs> versus feeling like I just. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, Jim, this is a kind of a, it's a founder question, right? Like you wake up and you've got a thousand of things to yes. do. The question is, ask, what is the priority? What you get done today? Do I have a free weekend? Probably haven't had one since January. Um, I do try to take Saturdays off. What gives me sense of accomplishment? Well, we've got a high level plan for the product and at the moment it's going and progressing well. But hey, ask me in two weeks time and you know, we, the answer might not be exactly the same. So at the moment we work on a number of assumptions and, and that gives me not an anxiety, but it sort of makes me definitely very um, diligent when it comes to planning because you know there's some buffers being built in etc but very often like with everything you just come across things that you couldn't have planned for and and this is where the whole thing goes out of the window so you know your timeline just out of a sudden gets delayed by two or three months yeah. and, you know you did promise to a customer that you're going to get it done but actually it might not be possible so it's it's definitely one thing that you know i'm trying to avoid but do i go home with a sense of accomplishment yes do i go home with a sense i'm finished absolutely not <laughs> There's, there's always so much that even if you get home for like 11 and, and you know that you've got still this 150 emails to respond and your, your, your Trello or whatever you use it mm -hmm. to track your actions, it's, it's, it's filling in. Yeah, it's a bad feeling when Trello or ClickUp or Asana or whatever is like, you're not actually making progress. It's going like this. It's, it's like, even though you're checking things <laughs> off the list, it's growing instead of receding. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and look, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I finally planned the holidays. So I'm going away in October, but I, you know, except from like a sort of longer weekend, I mean, three days here and there, it's, it probably was non-existent. So, you know, I'm 
I'm going to rest for a week. Well, good. Good for you. I, and on that note, I think, I, I think what I'm getting at is the idea of, of playing the long game, the idea of running the marathon versus a sprint. And I, this is a hotly debated topic, and I, a lot of founders are on the side of, look, you've got to work like you've never worked before, 80 to 100-hour weeks. You've got to get this done. And I guess, it, I guess it depends on the end goal. Like we're, we're building something that we want to endure a very long time. We have no intention of selling. I know that's not for everybody. But how do you look at your journey? I mean, do you look at this as a sprint? I'm going to get five, 10 years. I'm going to sell Climate X, et cetera. Or is, it, is this a, a marathon for you? So I think the short-term view, and I'll start with this one, is that it's a sprint to get the product finished. Okay. Um, I want to have something to show up and, you know, show up for. And, you know, we run in proof of concept with a number of customers at the moment, quite a few high-level customers that I'm, I'm really, really happy about. Um, and we're just demonstrating our sort of first view of the data and what can be received and sort of getting the feedback just to finish the product on time. I think that once the product is done, which I'm hoping, you know, to be to be relatively soon, um, I I will then move on to the more of a marathon mode. But at the moment, it's more of a sprint. Then the marathon mode, obviously, as you're saying, you know, there's a long-term plans. We, you know, we want to get to an IPO to, a, you know, one billion valuation. Hey, that's all very much for the cards. And, and it's not, I think it's all within the realms of plausible and, and I definitely see this happening. Uh, that, that's why I guess, you know, after this initial sprint, we, we kind of might, might want to be taking a bit, a few more breaks, etc. That being said, you know, we do, we are very proud of our team and we do take care of our team as well. So we're not trying to overwork them. They, they sort of, for example, they knew up front that August will be busy and that, you know, we need to get certain deliverables for the client first, but, you know, sort of at the moment we sort of, as we've done it, we sort of move in, you know, the, the, the science and the engineering team, we sort of looking at them and say, hey, guys, you know, it's, there's nothing urgent happening tomorrow. Like, let's plan it better if it's something takes you longer or let's find some shortcuts, etc. But, you know, we're not trying to overwork them all the, all the time. I guess the founder side is probably a bit different because I always be working longer. And <laughs> you, you know how it is to run your own business. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so interesting. I, I've been at it for a while with several different businesses and I learn from each one. But also, like, I, an interesting scenario that happened to me, that sounds victim mentality, that, that I, I did, was my behavior in, in my first startups was such that I created a scenario where my wife really resented the business. And that's not a good play for long-term success. So I, I've tried to be much more diligent now in making sure that I carve out family time and that I don't let my work take over. And part of that for me is just recognizing that the success of my day is not necessarily based on the number of hours I spend, but how effective I am and what I get done. And what I mean by that is like, I could have one sales call that goes really, really well. And honestly, if I did nothing else that day, that would still be a win. Now that, you know, of course I do other things during the day, but it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like the impact of that one thing, even though it maybe took an hour was, was much more than spending 10 hours spinning my wheels. So, I absolutely agree, and I think there's a, there's a couple of things here to unpick. One is the, the family life is obviously important, and, you know, I do make sure that, you know, I, I spend time with family, probably not as much time with my friends, which they're a bit annoyed about, <laughs> but, uh, the you know, the, I'm definitely with my partner and my pup. I've got the Shiba Inu, aged nine months, and uh, he's absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, you know, and I take him to work every day now, and he basically became a bit of a mascot for the whole team. But anyway, uh, the you know, it's it's very important. That's why like, I've got this, this this little rule when I try not to work uh, on Saturdays at all, and just you know trying to spend the time or you know the quality family mm -hmm. time. As well as you know, we do we do pretty much dinner together every every day. So you know, even even if it's quite late, you know, I can always work from home. I've got my office. It's 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 sort of easier. And around the, the quality versus quantity, yeah, absolutely. I use something called the prioritization matrix where, you know, there's the things that are urgent um, and impactful and things that are non-urgent non and unimpactful. And, and, you know, with the latter, you basically ditch them and just don't do them at all. Because there's a number of things you'll be asked to do, but the question is, like, is it impactful and is it, is it, is it urgent? If the answer is no, then the likelihood of me doing it is probably never. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious what advice you would give yourself 10 years ago. If you could go back and talk to Camille a decade ago, what would you say? Um, take a gap year before, from, from the uni before you actually start working. Take a gap year. Why? I, I think that um, that would have given you a bit more clarity in terms of um, where to go, what to do, whether you want to train more. Um, what's the actual job you want to do, you know, just, just try, try, try what's available out there, spend more time doing the research. I, I felt that um, I had some time, probably around six months for a bit of a break during university, but after I graduated, basically um, one of my professors effectively found me a job and, you know, I sort of, everyone was looking for it. I was like, great, I've got a job. But, but I think, you know, now, now, and it was an amazing role as well, but I'm thinking, um, you know, looking looking back, just just don't jump straight into it. Maybe maybe there's something else that would spark your interest. And I know that you know the parents those days they definitely weren't appreciative of you know they they, they just wanted their kids to graduate and then be the proud parents that <laughs> job done. You know, yeah. Yeah. and it's all taken care of and, and that's all good. But I think now probably people are more open to it. So you know, spend some time to explore mm -hmm. and and understand what you want to do, where you could you know impact things, especially now that. The, I, I feel that back in the day, back in the day, I'm not this old, I'm only 36, but uh, during, when I was graduating, I felt like, and, you know, I had probably less options than uh, the graduates these days. And the same probably would apply to my parents. They probably had less options than I did. But I think with the, with the amount of options, the opportunities increase as well. But also I think the, the chaos as well that comes with it or the indecisiveness yeah. or, you know, sort of anxieties as well. I think they, they sort of become a bit more pronounced, which I can, I can sort of see. Uh, and I, I've got a few family members at the moment and, and they, they've all about to graduate or graduated recently from universities. And, the, and, and what I'm seeing is that they actually don't know what to do because there's just too much choice. So I'm not sure what's better, less choice, but, but less stress or more choice and more opportunity, but quite a lot of stress. Yeah. Take time. Yeah, that's certainly, certainly a tough one. I, you know, obviously hindsight is, is always twenty twenty. but do you have a sense in your past that you chased something for too long that you wish you would have let go early? And this is applicable to, you know, employee going into business or even just within the context of business, chasing something too long. There's the idea of like sunk cost fallacy, et cetera. Like how does that play out for you in your past? Tough one. Um, I think on one side, um, I'm quite adamant. If, if I have a, if I set myself a goal, I, I want to reach it. And, and as I was saying, if there's no door, I'll find a window. Um, and, and I think this is, this is me generally. 
um, and how, how whether I've chased something for, for too long. I think there could have been sort of maybe individual projects that I would want to do and probably they ran longer than, than necessary. I but I think, you know, the, I wouldn't consider them as a time wasted either. I guess maybe it would be more um, ROI beneficial to, to, to exit earlier, if you, if you know what I mean. But overall, I think I don't, I don't have tremendous regrets about it. I think I would exit, you know, just about the time. I remember one time, and it's quite cheeky, um, <laughs> I've, uh, I've landed a new role in a firm, and I don't necessarily want to name it, but, um, you know, I've been there for, for, for the whole sort of three months until I passed my probation. And, you know, I passed my probation, but then I just turned around and I said, but you didn't pass mine. And, and that was the, that was the end of it. And, and I think it, it, it just, it just depends really. But I think I've, I would say that when it comes to my person, I would typically go and, you know, if I set myself a target, it's, it's there. And I think so far, maybe I've been lucky enough to be able to, to get there. But when it comes to, you know, I guess I'm in a startup environment, when it comes to wrapping up and sort of saying goodbye, maybe, you know, your, your resources are no longer required. I, at the moment, this is my second venture. The first venture is still around, but I thought I got to the stage where I wasn't bringing as much value as I would want to, as I would be expected of me. So uh, I, I just decided to to exit at that stage. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all within rounds of plausible. Yeah, for sure. Let, let's end with this. So if you were to be reset with no money, no connections, no professional relationships, what would you do? Do I have my education? <laughs> I was thinking about that pre-question. Like, am I going to give him that or not? Uh, sure. <laughs> let's, yeah, you, let's retain your education, but you got to start fresh. Yes. Um, I would be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would be in climate tech. I think this, this is the place to be. I think it's, uh, Link of data science, data engineering, uh, some of the latest cool, crazy thinking around the world. I mean, I'm so excited. I'm literally speaking to um, some folks next week about using the supercomputer for free, which is just brilliant. We can run our own climate simulations, which is just takes so much computational power that, um, you know, all the Amazon or Google clouds are just not able to handle. So it's, it's great. I, I don't know if there's a right yeah. answer to that question, but I think if there was, you just delivered it because like... The passion for what you're doing is incredibly important. And I think there's a strong argument to be made, and probably there's empirical data somewhere that says that when an entrepreneur is truly passionate about what they're doing for the just cause, as Simon Sinek says, not just for the money or the notoriety or whatever, then they have a much higher chance of success. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the, the money at the moment in comparison to what it was, it's, it's, it's absolutely nowhere near. So, uh, you know, there's definitely a passion driving me through it. And, I'm, you know, the, the, the finance is something secondary. I'm not thinking about it. I guess, you know, as I'm saying, I got to the stage in my career where there wasn't anything new and there wasn't any impact. And, and it just gets to the stage where you just say, well, it's done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about just wealth in general lately. And what I've come up with is, and this isn't novel by any stretch, but I think it's a function of delivering value in the world and shouldering responsibility, a lot of responsibility. And like, I walked out of my office the other day and I love what I do. I would do the same thing as you. I would reset, do the very same thing. I love my team and they're amazing, but there's just a weight of responsibility. And I've had different careers in the past, a lot of different jobs, et cetera. And I've never felt this kind of weight. And what I mean more than anything is that emotional 
like we had several team members sick. We've had, you know, deaths amongst our team from COVID, family member deaths, like that weight of responsibility to care for our team. You just, and I, I realize some careers may experience some of that, but in my, in my experience, there's never been something that has been so weighty with responsibility. And I think that that's why entrepreneurs kind of have this opportunity to have limitless financial opportunities because, well, if you add value, if your business is successful, then you're obviously adding value to people. And if you're willing and able to shoulder that responsibility, then I think there's, there's a variety of rewards at the end of that. I, I would agree with that. I guess before, before this, this venture, I've, um, I've, I've managed teams before, so I think it wouldn't be that the responsibility and being respons responsible for people, that didn't necessarily come as new to me. Um, I guess, obviously, you've got an extra stress of running your own firm and, you know, looking at the P&L on a daily basis where before I didn't have to, you know, care as much. And, you know, just moving from the, this bit of a step change to move from the financial services, in, you know, to be, to be fair, because you look at a million and, and then you just typically chop off this, the, the six zeros at the end and it's pretty much the same thing, right? <laughs> and then now when it comes to becoming out of your own firm's packet, it's, you know, every, every pound or a dollar makes an absolute difference. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, that, that's, that's the big change, I think, for me. That's, uh, that, that's definitely something that I feel more responsible for, which is just the, the everything. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas before, you know, the, you know like, I think taking care of people sort of comes naturally to me and to my co-founder as well. I think we, you know, when we set up this firm, we also saw having lived, worked in the corporate environment for quite some time, I think we've seen what's, what's bad and, and we didn't want to replicate this pattern. And at the end of the day, it's a, it's a job and it's a passion and it's becoming a part of someone's life. Then, you know, why not have a bit of fun and, and just enjoy what you do and at the same time work in an amazing environment. Absolutely. So, and, and I think yeah. the way it kind of comes you know, the, with the responsibility, I, I'm also of a mind that we're all responsible as a team for how that team mm -hmm. works and operates. So if there's something you want to do, then you should shout. And, you know, if there's something you'd like to see implemented, then why won't you drive the initiative and do so? Because, you know, we, we all work in the same office and we all see each other daily. And, and, and if, you know, if you want to do an activity after, well, get it organized, you know, it won't be always, always given to you. So everyone is sort of co-responsible sure. as well. I kind of see it that way. Yeah. Well, Camille, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you being so gracious with your time. And I know it's dinner time there in the UK and you very graciously stayed <laughs> late. Uh, and I know you had a very busy day. So thank you so much. The, the website is climate-x.com. And we'll certainly link to your LinkedIn as well. What's the best way for people to reach out if they're interested in learning more about ClimateX or if they just want to say hello? Um, we've, we've got a couple of ways to go via website and inquire. All this and inquiries at climate-x.com to, to reach out to us. Perfect. Great. Thanks again, Camille. Cheers. Thank you, Jim.